Welcome to yet another episode of Casted, our podcast here from ITU, where we talk about all things related to information technology. So my guest today is Yves Berthoud uh, from uh, INRIA and Sophie Antipolis, who is an expert on uh, proof verification, uh, which lies somewhere on the intersection of really foundational mathematics and hardcore software engineering. And uh, the reason we meet today is that he just verified the one millionth digit of pi, and I think that's such a great story that uh, I want to place this conversation um, around this result. So, Eve, uh, welcome. So, so, to make sure that our readers or listeners won't uh, be at the edge of their seat the entire conversation, what is the one millionth digit of pi? I don't know. You don't know. You just proved what it is and then you immediately forgot. And then forgot I forgot about it. And then you forgot about it. I actually, I prepared for this and, uh, and it's one. Oh, okay. It's one. Just like the first digit of pi is a one, the one millionth digit is also yeah. one. So, I was mostly interested in, in looking at algorithms and the way people think about them. And... Uh, this was an example of an algorithm with, that used both some symbolic computing and some, some facts about real numbers and transcendental functions. So this is why I was looking at this one. You know, the kind of mathematics that, uh, that I used there are around uh, 19th century mathematics. So it's also a way to, to understand how much of the mathematics uh, can be described uh, with these uh, automatic or interactive proof tools. Right, because this, this is where we want to go, that you have a chance to explain to me what an automatic proof tool or an interactive uh, verification tool actually is. Mm. And, um, yeah, as you said, the, uh, the thing you did was to verify the computation following a known algorithm, yes. which is 100 years old or actually a bit older. I think, uh, well, people... Uh, I've, I've, I've had a hard time understanding because, in fact, I was too lazy to go and look at uh, uh, the papers of uh, Gauss. Mm -hmm. But uh, apparently this algorithm was already described by Gauss. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, rediscovered in the 70s by uh, Brent and Salamin. In the 1970s. 1970s. So this is basically what <coughs> I use as my source. Is mm -hmm. Uh, data from, from articles published by Brent and Salamin uh, on how to compute certain mathematical constants, in particular pi. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there is a book by uh, the Bowen brothers, which is pi and the AGM, that has the full description of the two algorithms I studied. So this, is pub this was published in the 90s. So mm -hmm. I'm really using, from, for the algorithmic content, I'm really using uh, information that is already provided in the scientific literature. So this, so when we th say algorithm here, that is both a method of computation mm -hmm. and an argument for why this method is correct. Yes. And let, let me let's try to disentangle these things because computing pi is of course something that goes back not only to the 19th century but probably something like 2,000 years old. Must be one of the early uh, computational problems tackled by mathematicians uh, for millennia. Yes, uh, I think one of the one of the earliest algorithm is uh, attributed to Archimedes, and uh, what he uses is uh, is called like an exhaustion method. He describes uh, polygons that are close to uh, to the circle, and so he has uh, a sequence of polygons that are inside the circle, uh, where he increases the number of sides. Uh, so that it gets closer and closer to the surface of the circle, and he says how to compute the uh, surface using... Yeah. Maybe, maybe just to make sure that we're all on the same page, so the value we want to compute is the circumference, or half the circumference of a circle with radius 1. Or the surface. Or the surface, right, because pi appears in two different formulas for... So this is this is this is that, have, that are related with the geometry of the circle. This is basically how Archimedes describes the the value he wants to compute. But uh, more modern presentation uh, actually takes directly the the trigonometric functions as the reference, uh, and so the and, and, and in some way the the complex exponential. 
Right, but and let's 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 then, let's stay with Archimedes just for a moment, so, so, so that we really Archimedes. understand that. So 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 instead of so since it's really difficult to draw the cycle precisely and actually measure this with a ruler, what we can do is to inscribe into the circle a square, for instance, and, and then in the case of Archimedes, he starts with an hexagon. He starts and uh, right because he's Archimedes, doesn't start with a square. You can put you can you can put more and more. Uh, circle-like uh, objects into inside the circle and then use very basic math uh, to the, complete the, the, there are regular the regular polygons polygons and uh, actually it starts with this with the with an hexagon and then it divides the angles by two and he has a you know, simple trigonometric formulae for the sine and cosine of uh, yeah, and most high school students could do this at home and get a pretty good approximation of pi, at least the first few digits. You could do at home without any help of a computer by just drawing precise uh, polygons inside the circle. Um, there are only three kinds of mathematicians. There are those, three. Yeah, those who can count and those who can't. Yes. And I can't, that's why yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in computers. So I don't know exactly what is the value that Archimedes arrives to, but I think it's about two digits of precision. Yeah. And he, he does that by t starting with this hexagon and dividing until he reaches something that has approximately a hundred sides. I think, I think 96. 96. The 96 gone, yes. Okay. And he does that for the one inside and he does the same for the one outside. So in, in this way he has a surface that is visibly by the naked, uh, the naked eye, it looks like smaller than the surface of the circle because it's inscribed inside. And it has another one which is visibly also by the naked eye. So he larger. gets right. So this is his argument to say, I have... Uh, he has increasingly uh, good upper and I, lower I, I bounds. I have an interval uh, yes. in which the, the number uh, and pi has to, to be. And his upper bound and lower bound agree on the first few digits, which means that pi must also yes. be uh, squeezed sandwiched between these two values. So now if you read uh, about uh, modern mathematics, I'm leaving Archimedes. I, I actually verified Archimedes' method also uh, within my, my system. So I, I, at some before the paper that I, would, I was describing in the, in the talk that you were referring to, I had another one where I, I did a tour of several methods of computing pi, including the one mm -hmm. by uh, Archimedes. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Uh, now, if we, if we look at the, what I'm going to use as the modern reference uh, to what is pi, I will take uh, the, the, the first positive root of the cosine function and uh, multiply that by 2 and say that this is, this is the constant that I'm interested in. This is pi. Mm -hmm. And the cosine function itself is going to be defined by uh, uh, a power series. So it's a very close to the kind of process we're accustomed to see in computer science. It's a repetitive process. Uh, but there's already a lot of information in here, right? So, so I guess for a high school student, the fact that pi can be expressed in terms of a trigonometric function, such as cosine or, uh, or sine, should not be surprising because yes. it's, it's a relationship between various uh, uh, angles in these uh, uh, triangles that you can inscribe into the cycle. And then it also turns out that the cosine, the value of the cosine of x can be described as a sum of increasingly small fractions, yes. which is called the power series expansion. Yes. And this is early 18th century math, I guess. Yes, uh, I think this, this uh, you said early 18th? 1700s, so it's 18th yeah. century. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, at the end of the 17th century, in the beginning of the 18th. Um, so that, that makes that, uh, coming back to pi, uh, there was a, 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 a Scottish mathematician by the name of John Machen, mm -hmm. who uh, just embarked in the computation of the first 100 digits using uh, a simple formula. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it must have taken a few, a few days to do it. But, uh, so this method is based on uh, using the arctangent function. And so if you know enough about derivatives and integral, uh, the arctangent function is, a, is an object that you can master quite quickly, uh, at least for its, uh, 
for its uh, approximations because uh, the derivative of the arctangent function is an easy to write function. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from this derivative, you can have easy approximations of, of the integral, which is the arctangent function. And people knew, knew about that in the 18th century. And I think even the Indian mathematicians knew about it earlier, like in the 15th or the 16th century. They were. Uh, but again, my memory fails me, so I can't give names. Just, uh, foreign names are much harder for me. Than John Machen is an easy name to remember for French because it's a joke. It's a joke. Yeah, because it's called la formule de machin. Machin is the word that you use for just the thing. A machin is a thing. Is a thing. So the the formula of so and so. <laughs> so by cleverly mispronouncing Machen's name, yeah. you get a joke. Excellent. Yeah, and so and it's, it's Machen is, is the is the advisor of Taylor. Oh. Yeah, and so Taylor did make this entire so project into a basically yeah, the idea of expressing uh, functions as sums of fractions. Yes, actually, uh, in the case of Taylor, it's uh, it's even stronger than that. It's every uh, function of interest is somehow approximated by a sequence of polynomials. Yeah. So this is... Uh, and polynomials are exactly what computers know how to compute. Right, but so we are this still is in a world this without this computers, so we are still in a world where some people like Machen sit down and laboriously by hand compute uh, uh, smaller and smaller fractions and add them by hand. And then after days and days of computation, they finally arrive at the 100th digit of pi. So this is, this is actually it's the start of, a, of an area of human computers. And is at, at that <coughs> point, people understood that they were, they, there was a need to hire people just to do computations and make tables. Right, because yeah, we still also understand that until 1950, the word computer refers to a human, a person. So the word computer was a job description of a person. Yeah. And then in the 1950s, uh, the word changes. Th the word e electronic computer refers to what we today call computers. And, yeah. and by 1950, there are no human computers left. So computers are just electronic computers. Rough. The last, the last big projects using human computers, uh, I have the impression, were both for the NASA effort of uh, the conquest of space. And also because uh, during the New Deal, mm -hmm. uh, there was an effort by the government to provide uh, to provide jobs for people who were otherwise unemployed. So some of these jobs were in making like the Hoover Dam or, or making uh, building uh, highways and bridges. And part of this uh, allotment was used to 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 give a job to people who could compute. So. Some of the tables that were used in the middle of the 20th century were produced in this way on public money and was considered as worthy as, as uh, producing a bridge. Or mm -hmm. or oh, if you got that wrong, then the bridge fell down. So, Yeah, well, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit too bad that somehow this, this kind of human <coughs> effort got obsolete much faster mm -hmm. than the Hoover Dam. But it, makes, it still makes that there were quite a few mathematicians that were already working on algorithms because they had to provide the job description for the computers. Yeah, Even before they had uh, electronic computers. Right. So know. the first algorithms are very much written to be run, to be run on humans. Yeah. So and there uh, there's precise instructions of calculations that are so precise that a diligent a very patient human can follow them step by step and the right answer comes out. So this is, uh, in fact, uh, I think algorithm, al algorithmics are part of mathematics forever. Mm -hmm. and, but uh, it also makes that uh, algorithmics are in the beginning of computer science, even before computer science was about electronic computing. Oh yeah. And, uh, and uh, when, uh, on a side note, I would like to notice that uh, some of the, the leaders in this topic were women. Oh, yeah. So, uh, like the, I think uh, the number two person in charge for this project of computation uh, on the New Deal money was, was, a, was a woman. Again, I forgot the name, but uh, people can go and look it up.
So, so time goes on, and during the 19th centuries, there are increasingly complicated manual computations of pi. Uh, actually, this I looked up. I think uh, the uh, uh, the last manual computation gets some 725 digits of pi uh, figured out by hand with pen and paper. So, uh, in France, in France, there is a little anecdote that is quite funny because there is a place in. Uh, in one of the of the science museums, where the 700 uh, uh, decimals of pi have been computed and written on the mm -hmm. uh, on the on the wall, but they are wrong, uh, starting from a given digit. I ah, don't remember which excellent. one. Excellent. Yeah, so it had to be corrected. Now we are get slowly <laughs> getting there because all these computations, of course, are in danger of being wrong yes. for at least two reasons. One is that the mathematical argument for uh, computing pi, if you want the formula, mm. that could simply be wrong math. Mm -hmm. And the other could be that uh, even if the formula is correct, the computations involved in following this formula could be mistaken by a simple transcription error or because somebody was drunk or made a mistake. So th th and there's, no, there's no real way of checking. You know, you c if you make a mistake, there is no physical artifact that will be... because. Only the first 40 are meaningful for physical... For phys okay, right. Because I guess we need this out of the way. We could make a super perfect... Uh, we could build in titanium a super perfect uh, uh, unit circle. Yeah. And then we could, with a very, very good ruler, we could measure the circumference of yeah. that. And then we could simply see how long is the piece of string around... Yeah, and, and probably the physical limits of the size of atoms and things like that would make that we would probably not be able to go beyond uh, a few ten, uh, ten digits. Yeah, that uh, sounds may reasonable. That may be uh, an, over, an overestimation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because if you have uh, an approximation of pi to 1,000, that's pretty good for any everyday life needs. So uh, including building bridges and... Uh, yeah. N then if you want to do a GPS uh, system that works uh, well and gives you a precise position to build your bridge, in that case you go a little further, but not that much. Right, but, but just mentioning GPS is interesting here because, because why would anybody care about this constant? Well, the, the constant appears in many, many calculations. In fact, some of the early calculations for pi were exactly motivated by, for instance, uh, determining the circumference of Earth. Yeah. So, so, so um, a geolocation, lo locating people on, uh, on Earth are computations that do involve pi. And thanks to GPS, this is something that your phone does now. So, so getting relatively precise estimates of pi is, is more than just a, uh, more than just a gentlemanly um, a pastime which probably was why the Greeks were interested. Right? The, yes, the, the, yes. the, 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 the ancient the Greeks didn't want, really didn't want to solve any problems. They were just fascinated by the fact that pi and square root of 2 had strange and scary mathematical properties. Yeah, that may be true, but still, going beyond 40 digits of pi is a futile effort. <laughs> From a practical point of view. From so a now, we are, point of view. now we are, at least for the beginning of the conversation, in what seems to be just a gentlemanly pastime where we solve this problem because it's internally motivated. Yeah, it's like, how uh, can you not like going care? on top of the Everest. Yeah. Going on top of the Everest. How can you not care about the one millionth digit of pi? But uh, so, so, um, so we, we, we're getting from this um, uh, practically motivated math as calculation, which math was for a long time, so just simply uh, figuring stuff out in order to shoot uh, cannonballs in the right direction or just determining the circumference of Earth. Um, uh, math then, at the uh, turn of the previous century, uh, takes a completely different direction and becomes a formalist project. Yes. And is no longer actually interested in problem solving, but it's, uh, it's fascinated by concepts of truth and logic. Math becomes a part of logic, and logic becomes a part of math. Well, logic was, was invented 25, year, 25 centuries ago, uh, about also by the Greek. And uh, it was about, uh, basically, after the first uh, years of enthusiasm, they discovered that you could use logic in distorted way, and so that went to in the sophist uh, direction. Maybe that's my. Maybe philosophers will, will disagree with my uh, understanding of history. But um, 
after a while, people distrusted logic because it was too easy to 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 make a big reasoning and then make you understand something that you didn't want. Mm -hmm. And this is because uh, very often you can make people start from false assumptions and then you make a very reasonable uh, piece of reasoning and then uh, in the end you make people uh, agree with something they didn't want to. And, and logic trains you in focusing on the veracity of the individual reasoning steps rather than questioning the assumptions. Yes. So, so therefore logic invites you to put your focus on exactly the wrong kind of the argument which is why some people rejected it. But logic was very much part of uh, language of, 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 uh, of uh, an analysis of what the truth is yeah. and, m and the um, uh, mathematics as calculation uh, was something else that, that was much more of, a, of an engineering discipline. So all of a sudden in the with the advent of, uh, of the, the end of the 19th century you start to have people who say oh but what if geometry was different? What if the initial assumptions of geometry were different? Then and this starts to be interesting because physicists uh, are questioning the nature, nature of space. So geometry, Euclidean geometry, uh, was based on the assumption that uh, parallel, um, parallel lines never meet. But what if they, what if they did? And, and, and symmetrically, I don't know what is the argument, but... Uh, uh, a space in which uh, parallel lines do meet corresponds approximately to what happens on the surface of a sphere. So this is something that's enclosed. But if you look the other way around, you may have something that expands as you, as you go far further. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out that this, this kind of space would be interesting to understand what is happening uh, with uh, relativity uh, in physics. So all of a sudden, people start to say, oh, maybe we can keep the same kind of, of logic, but we have to question the assumptions differently. And, and this uh, relativity, in some sense, is, is hitting hard on everybody. It's not just about physics. Everything becomes relative. And in some sense, the end of the 20th century goes further than that. You know, Everybody starts to think, well, every, syst every system of thought is as good as any other. So at some point we'll have to recover about that, but but in right now it's really well. This is the level, the assumptions that you use. Uh, what what can we do about that? And uh, well, maybe I don't know if it's completely related, but but uh, maybe not. Maybe the thought about the foundations of geometry led people to think that there would be it would be useful to think about the foundations of math at all. And this was a moral disaster of the, of the highest order for mathematicians, right? That, 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 that suddenly the foundations of mathematics were drawn into question, and, and this led to... I don't know if it's a moral disaster for everybody. No, not, not for everybody. Absolutely. I think uh, uh, a good proportion of them said, yeah, but uh, two, is two plus two is still equal to four. I can still do a lot of reasoning. I don't know what your foundations are or why you want to think too much about the foundations, but every th all, the, all the other math that I do <coughs> makes sense. So wh why should I bother? Absolutely. But in the other camp, there were people like Hilbert. And I Hilbert did a lot of mathematics in, in many domains. So it's, it's still, you know, uh, he had the, the, the stature to say, oh, but this is important. This question is important, nonetheless. And... Uh, he went back into thinking about logic. And I guess this is at the same time where mathematical logic also became something, thanks to Boole and Frege and so on, uh, logic suddenly became a piece of math. There was a notation for reasoning about truth statements um, and, 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 and the, the originally language-based uh, discipline of logic now became a discipline of math where you could manipulate uh, logical propositions yeah. with more or less the same um, 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 approach as you manipulate propositions in geometry. Yeah, so I think it's also related to algebra. 
Okay. In algebra, you start with computations, and then you think about the process of computation. And uh, in the in in logic, well, you start with the, the utterances, and then you think you think about the process of putting the utterances mm -hmm. together. So it's very much a language issue, mm -hmm. and this is completely revived with the advent of computer science because. On the one hand, people want to develop languages to make sure that the computers do yes. what we want. And on the other hand, uh, we can do all kinds of computations on these, uh, these new objects, which are right, the, because the you sentences you, you in you the language. Yeah. You mentioned computer science now because this is, I think, the, uh, the uh, very surprising result of this uh, very narrow focus on foundations of math that developed around the uh, turn of the previous century, where, where some people simply said, no, we have to understand the foundations of these things and, and spent a lot of time on formalism, which seemed to be highly, almost deliberately impractical. Right? And, and I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a surprise of the highest magnitude that, that the result of these endeavors turned out to be computer science, which is as practical and impactful as anything you could hope for. Well, I... Computer science is, well, the, the way we, we view computer science now in the beginning of the 21st century is also the, the result of a very pragmatical approach. That is, we build devices in which we can model small computations by objects that are uh, smaller and smaller and that we can mm -hmm. put in, in greater and greater numbers. And the complexity of it just, just escapes the human mind. Mm -hmm. Unless we give ourselves a discipline of putting, of how we put the formulas together. And this is where language plays a role. Mm -hmm. So we can do that for, and we, we start defining progra uh, programming languages in a way that just, uh, just practical, you know, if I write this, then it's going to do that. And uh, after a while, we start having a problem that we define a programming language for a given computer and another programming language for another computer. So people start to think this should be somehow, uh, there should be a way to do this uh, once and for all. So your languages start to exist. But this is middle of the last century, right? 1960s yeah. maybe, that, that the idea that there should be programming languages that are not tied to the individual hardware, to the individual machine, yeah. that was a new idea. Okay, and, and, so and people start to think about how you put sentences together and all that. And the mathematicians who are looking at that on the side say, oh, but we could do that with our own sentences. So you go in the, you're in the, in the 60s, and uh, uh, I think uh, McCarthy in the US uh, started this kind of idea, and uh, De Bruyne in, in the Netherlands started a project that, that was called Automath. So Automath is very close to my, my topic because his own idea was uh, using um, using work uh, in logic by by uh, by Church. Uh, Alonzo Church uh, directly uh, as the way to represent all the sentences. And there was a, a, a tradition also uh, coming from Curry about giving the type of these formulas and the discovery that uh, if you talk about the type of a formula, uh, no, that's not the type of a formula. If, a, if you want to talk about the type of an expression, then it can, this type itself can be an expression. There was a lot of information here, so yeah. do we need to explain types? So, if you think about a program as taking inputs and producing outputs, mm -hmm. then what are these inputs and outputs? Mm -hmm. they, can, they may be numbers, or they may be arrays of numbers, or they may be arrays of arrays of numbers. So it's very, it's very useful to say, oh, to make sure that I'm going to put things together, I will annotate all my programs with this information, what they do take as input and what they produce as this output. This program expects two integers or a matrix of complex numbers or yes. a function that maps uh, integers to strings. And one very simple way to avoid errors in programming is to just make sure that 
the units correspond. That is, if you have a program that produces a number, then you can feed its output to another program that accepts a number as input. Because both of these programs are explicitly telling me, by virtue of the formalism, the programming language yeah. in which they express, express that this program expects an integer, or yeah. this program produces two complex numbers, or a string, or a picture. So every program say, uh, I eat this kind of thing, and I produce that kind of thing. And if you just respect this, this kind of requirements for every program, then you already uh, avoid a lot of the mistakes that people will do when they just put data. Because, and this is the, the underlying uh, observation, that programming is an incredibly error-prone process. Yes. That is, it's Im almost impossible to sit down and write a program, even for a highly intelligent person to write down a program that does what you thought it should do. Yes. Uh, for example, if I write on the board, uh, this is what my uh, computer is going to do, and I ask you to look at it, if I make a mistake in the middle of the board, you won't be able to see it. Most of the time, you won't be able to see it. And so if I reread myself something that I wrote that I said the computer has to do, I won't be able to spot the problem. So I need to have some discipline that helps me say, oh, but this is, you know, like uh, electricians use uh, color-coded wires. Well, we need this kind of color-coded wires when we write the program. Well, that was a good example. So there are many disciplines that make, uh, that try to produce stuff that could be wrong, like building bridges or or uh, fixing the electricity in a house. Mm. And ma many of these disciplines have a, actually a default assumption of probably things going wrong. So they have established routines, disciplines, checks, and so on to, make sh to, 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 to limit uh, the effect of human error, for instance, by having different colored wires, because we assume that this is something we could easily mess up. So a lot of people who do already do know about programming, they are accustomed to use types like say, this is a number, or this is an array of numbers, or this is a sentence in a language. Now, what I want to do is to be, be more precise than that. I would like to be able to say, oh, I don't want just any number. I want a number that has extra properties, like it's smaller than the size of the, of the array I'm going to use. Have. Or it's positive. Or, or it's, it's positive. even. Or it's prime. Or, or it's prime. No. Right. So, okay, let's just take... So, so, so there are some programming languages that completely ignore this, that are very, very weakly typed. Then there are many, many industrial strength programming languages today that have some kind of pretty impressive type system that does what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And then you could go another step and say that not only do I want to express the fact that the output of this program is an integer, but it should be an integer that is, say, a prime. Yes. Or less than 100. Exactly. And so this is what, uh, this is the, the, the kind of technology in which I made my effort. Using one of these languages that has this capability of decorating the data with ex even more information. But that extra, inf that extra information is completely described using logic. So right. if I want to say so that the number is prime, I say that there exists no other number that can divide it or... So your computer, so, so, so the, the code of your computer program now is a lot of instructions telling the computer to do first this and then that, but it also includes logical formalisms that express the expected properties of the input and the output of, your pro of, of this exact transformation. So, so you describe not only what you do, but you also describe in logic uh, the properties of what you expect the input to the program to be. Yes, so there are two ways to do it. One is to say that I have... Uh, a much, instead of having only three colors in my electrical uh, meta metaphor, I have gazillions of colors, each, uh, each of which is describing very precisely a property that I can have. Mm -hmm. And I say my program is taking as input a number which is smaller than 100 and is a prime. And I can all that. And then uh, when in, in my program, I, I, I say this, uh, this piece of data I can feed it to that other program because it requires a number which is smaller than a thousand and which is a prime. And I, I can show that being smaller than a hundred and, and being a prime is strong enough to be for being smaller than a thousand and being a prime. So I have to do a little logic adaptation to say some of my conditions on my inputs are good 
for the usage I want to have. And, and that part now requires some kind of mini math argument, saying yes. that, for instance, being, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, smaller than 100. Smaller than 100 and, and a prime is enough for being smaller than 1,000. Yes. I, I guess I can prove that in my head. And, and, and I could I also type that into some kind of programming environment. So you can do that. And for a lot of these conditions, you can do it automatically. So this is where you don't want to spend time on just saying, yeah, everybody knows that 100 is smaller than 1,000. And being smaller than 100 is enough for being smaller than uh, the uh, whatever. <laughs> the, so this is how we work. We have that, but sometimes we have conditions that are much harder than that. So there is an example by, an, uh, uh, by uh, uh, one of the best uh, uh, reference in algorithmics with Don Knuth. And Don Knuth wrote an algorithm for uh, uh, computing all the primes smaller than a given number. And uh, so he, in this, he, he, he builds uh, uh, an array and he reuses the values in this array until a certain limit. And at some point, we have to be careful that he doesn't reuse values that are beyond the ones that he already put in the array. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that he, d he doesn't take a value that has not been written yet. And so this is a bit of a difficulty. And in his book, he says, oh, this is... I don't need to do this test. I don't need to write anything to test that this mistake won't happen. Because mathematically, we know that between n and 2n, there's always a prime number. So he uses a very strong result of mathematics, which is way beyond what can be proved automatically, to guarantee that this piece of software is going to work without a mistake. His code exploits, probably for efficiency reasons, yes. a deep mathematical theorem. Because that, that makes it possible to remove a test in his code, in a test that happens in a loop. So you don't want this test to be repeated too many times. And so he says, oh, I can just get rid of the test because it will never be needed. The, the, the case where, where the test fails will never happen. And this is because of a, uh, of a mathematical result. And the mathematical result, we trust somebody else to have proved. So that and now it gets interesting. That was conjectured mm -hmm. in 1850-something by, by um, um, a French mathematician by the name of Bertrand. Mm -hmm. And it was proved a few years later by Chebyshev. This is Bertrand's postulate? Yes, Bertrand's postulate. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can prove it uh, on a computer using the same technology as, as I did. It was done a few years ago by uh, Laurent Terry, uh, uh, a close colleague of mine. Um, I guess we need to expand that. To, do that, to do that, he used a proof that was uh, also found in the book by Erdős. Paul Erdős. Yes. So that this is uh, uh, an interesting part of the kind of job that we think is that we don't invent the proofs. We go and get them in the books and then we translate them in a way that the computer can verify them. Right, because this is now the, 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 the system you are building, and the, the, system, the particular system you're building is called COC. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of, maybe a handful of different uh, research groups around the globe that try to build these. So this is an automated interactive theorem prover, or what is the correct terminology? I think the, 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 the word is mostly interactive theorem prover. Interactive theorem prover. But they all rely on some, some level of automation. Which is an extremely um, uh, precise... So this is both a syntax for expressing mathematical statements, mm -hmm. and so it's formalism, and it's a syntax for expressing mathematical reasoning steps, such as if I want to prove that P implies Q, then I first have to assume P, and then I have to do some math, and then I have to end at Q. Mm -hmm. So these uh, reasoning steps are built into the system, and then I, as a mathematician, can sit down and, and write my proof so that it is verified step by step by a computer, as opposed to the normal way for a mathematician to operate, which is to write down the proof in English using somewhat more flowery prose, uh, 
and uh, maybe uh, it has elegant. to be flowery because it, you want other humans to read I it. I want other humans to read it, right? And then publish that and wait for some other mathematician to go to the proof and say, yes, I'm convinced because uh, these kinds of arguments normally work and I'm not actually going to check that computation and this smells right. By c in, in contrast, the system that uh, these interactive theorem provers, there's a computer that really checks every one of these steps with uh, with uh, soul-destroying accuracy and diligence. Hmm? Yes. So this is where we are today, um, uh, that, that we can express mathematical proofs, some of them non-trivial, and get them verified by a computer. Yeah. So this increases our uh, um, uh, belief in that this proof actually being correct because yeah, it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust, right? It's 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 a much more. So once a proof has been subjected to this kind of formalism, it's much more trustworthy than before. Um, and as we observed, these proofs can be part of a an argument for software being correct. Yes. So the argument of software being correct, uh, you know. We can also be, well, in a sense, because we are doing logic, uh, we might think that um, uh, we are attracted by absoluteness. You know. Logic is about absolute truth. Mm -hmm. you don't. But, but even for practical reasons, you may want to say, I want to have this extra verification. Like when you do a multiplication, you have uh, easy ways to check uh, whether your multiplication is is uh, as a chance to be right, you know, the things that you uh, that we mm -hmm. learned as, as a kid. Prof par neuf is called in French. Yes, uh, something with nines in English. Yes, uh, drawing out nines, something like that. Yeah. Yes, mm? but the, um, if we just want to develop a piece of software and make sure it's right, then what do we do? We we write test cases. But the proposal by using the tool I have in, uh, in hand is that, well, instead of writing test cases that are just points, why, can't, why, why does, don't I write uh, a test formula, which is, which is going to be true for a wide variety of input values? Uh, or which will be meaningful for a wide variety of values. And then I want to prove that this formula is always right. So I'm going to use logic for this. And this is a bit like testing, except that in somehow, my, somehow my testing becomes symbolic. Well, the goal is the same as testing, right? The goal is to improve the, test, uh, the trust in a software system. Yes. And yeah, as you correctly observe, the, the standard way of software engineering is to subject your, well, there are many practices in software engineering. One is, I guess, peer review, that I publish my new piece of code and some other uh, programmer looks at it and says, no, there's a mistake there. Mm -hmm. So that would be an easy case where we just can agree that I made a mistake. Or we can run the code and see that it does what it should. Yeah. Or we can run the code in a highly defensive way in the, set that, in the sense that I run the code uh, deliberately trying to kill it by exposing it to inputs that that may not even normally appear, yeah. but, but to, 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 to run the code in, a some, some sense, in some sense in a, in a malicious way. I, I try to really uh, kill this code. So, so a lot of uh, uh, industrial strength software today comes not only with the code that does what it should do, but also with enormous libraries of test cases that subject the code to these tests. So this builds a lot of trust, but it's not what you're advocating here, because you're not testing it by well, subjecting it to individual runs and seeing that they didn't fail. I'm not advocating it. What I'm advocating is the method I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you, you might say, yes, in your world, everything seems right, but is it useful for me, for me uh, as a practitioner? And actually, this, this, this kind of experiment has been done. Uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, with a few colleagues, we, we decided to, to, to study the idea that a compiler for a programming language could be written completely using this approach. Mm -hmm. So they started in, in around 2002. And the, the, main, the, main, uh, the main proponent of this approach is called Xavier Leroy, uh, he's also a close colleague. 
and uh, he de designed um, uh, uh, a C compiler, which is called ComCert. Mm -hmm. So ComCert has been the language, the way the we think that the language should uh, behave, the way we think that the programs uh, in this language should behave has been described completely formally. And uh, there are logical formulas that say, Whenever you write a program that has this shape, it should behave in that way. So the semantics of the programming language C are more or less well defined here. More or less, that is, that is, the the book that defines C said at this place you can do whatever you want as a compiler writer. So the 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 concert development made a choice, a specific choice for uh, some of these instances. So it's not exactly the language C. It's a choice that is compatible with the definition, which was a piece of prose. Mm -hmm. Now, you have this piece of, uh, of compiler, and then it has been tested. Been tested by people who didn't believe in informal methods any more than any other thing. What they did is they generated millions of small tests, and they compared all compilers, all available compilers, on these tests. Mm -hmm. And so, you have, if they don't agree, that somebody may, may, may make an error, and in that case, what you do is you go and look in the reference and you say, oh, maybe the disagreement is allowed by the language definition, or maybe the disagreement is not allowed, and one of them is making a mistake. And in doing this, after millions of tests, you can say, oh, one of them is failing less than the others. Comcert is failing less than the others. Ah, but that's a great success. Right? That's, that's a success. A, this is a that's good a, success That's story. a practical success. You know, it's just... It's not just we finished the proof or something like that and, and it's been uh, appraised by everybody. It's just a practical success. If you want to have a piece of software compiled and make sure that your compiler is not introducing a bug, then you have a good chance that using this one instead of using others is a good, is a good approach. The trust has been built not only by the fact that we have a logical description, and this logical description may be hard to read by anybody on the street, but we also have stati statistical evidence that's been produced by an independent team. So this is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is why, you know, uh, we have this connection with math, but we also have a deeply rooted uh, uh, origin in the need of making sure the compilers do what we want. Or more generally, software does what we want, right? Because yeah. there are there are plenty of cases where it's not re it's not really so important that my Angry Birds program on my iPhone always does what it should. But there are there are cases where software is highly critical in the aviation industry, in the military, uh, in surgery, and many other areas. Or um, many of the small details where code today regulates a lot of our of, of our society, where we where we would like this to be really super precise, using uh, where we would like to bring um, everything we know as a civilization about trust and truth. So trust is in, into into building software. Trust is really important, and trust is something that we that has to be shared. So in this case, you know, we're talking about an industry. So this is a this is a domain where people sell software and people buy software. And uh, when you buy software, when you buy a, a house, you cannot necessarily. Uh, go and look inside the walls to see if uh, steel has been put at every place where it should be. It's not easy. So what you do is you, you make sure that it's been built by somebody who knows how to do it. And right now, until now, that's is the, this is the way that software is developed. We just check that the companies that sells the software is, has the good credentials. But we probably can do better than that. We can not only say they have the good financials, but they're also using the good methods. Mm -hmm. And somehow I'm advocating the idea that including this kind of proof with, uh, with logical statements of what is expected in the development process may be useful. And using a tool, now there is a problem with, with the, the tool itself. You have to trust the proof too. How are, are, how can you be sure that the proof will not accept any fact as being true? No. 
So this is well, uh, you, you're moving the trust question. For instead of uh, having to trust a different another mathematician, you're now having to trust a piece of software, a different piece of software, yes. to do the right thing. And that piece of software may be also very complex. And how do I know that it's not going to accept uh, a false statement at a place where it shouldn't? Mm -hmm. And uh, in, the in the case of the Cox system, you know, in the beginning, uh, Drew Bruyne was saying, oh, we should develop these uh, proof verification systems in such a way that they are so small, everybody agrees they are right. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, for example, when uh, Tom Hales, so this is another anecdote, uh, Tom Hales uh, published in the end of the 90s, a proof of the Kepler conjecture, which is uh, the conjecture that the optimal way to put spheres together is to put them like in a crystal. Uh, well, and uh, uh, when he did this proof, he actually reduced a, a big number of cases and then wrote a, a program in C++ that checked all these cases using optimizations with uh, transcendental functions and mm -hmm. things like that. Right. And uh, he had many of these tests and he, uh, he wrote a program and then he said, my program checked all the tests and that's th this, this is correct. And when he wanted to publish the result, the mathematicians who were supposed to review the publication before uh, it being uh, accepted in a, in a, in a journal said, well, we trust all the, the mathematical reasoning that, that says that uh, trusting this program will, will be okay. But we don't trust the program. We don't know that this program is doing the right thing. And so uh, Tom has decided, okay, if they don't trust the program, I have to rewrite the program in a way that people can trust. And at that point, he decided to choose when among all these offers for, for interactive theorem provers, decided to choose one that was so small that there wouldn't be any doubt. Even a mathematician could, write, could read that much code and be convinced that it does what it should. Yeah, mm -hmm. he could read that much yes. code and do that. Mm -hmm. And so the system he chose for that was all light. Mm -hmm. So I think we, have, we are facing this, this turning point. We, we need to be able to provide a tool that is trusted by a, by a wide community to, so that we can then delegate our verifica verification to that tool. To that tool. Building trust of increasingly complex systems by referring to, them, to the trustworthiness of a simple system. So the, the, the case of Hall Light and the case of, of Koch are different in this respect. Uh, Hall Light is developed by only one person. Uh -huh. And uh, for the Koch system, I'm trying to push in a direction where, uh, where it's more of a community effort and the community together is going to, to build up the trust. So let me put my, my software engineering uh, uh, cap on. So, so in, in, in programming language, uh, th th there's, ob there's clearly uh, has been a, an enormous effect, certainly for something like uh, uh, static analysis, yeah. uh, which also started as an academic project. Mm -hmm. uh, that is now part of many major programming languages and program environments, mm -hmm. such that uh, even non-theorists, so normal programmers, use these tools routinely. Actually, they can't avoid them because their compiler does this. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's a, a, a huge success, I guess, from the formalist school that has had a big effect on uh, software development and improve the quality of code a lot, reduce yes. the error a lot, measurably. So do, do you see um, COC and similar systems of going in the same direction? I would hope so, but I think there are hurdles to, to bypass because, uh, or, or to jump. Um, the, the static analysis kind of tool is basically press button. You're, you already know how to program. You write your program and the system tells you, oh, but here you, you're going to go beyond uh, the, the, the required interval of values or something. Well, we have made it harder for the programmer. The, hard, the programmer has to tell us what the type is and what the, um, I mean. Yeah, but uh, having to say what the type is in the beginning 
uh, was not uh, so, so much of a constraint because, frankly, the, the programmer was making so many mistakes before that having this idea of writing types is a relief. Turned out to be a relief it after, after one relief, week. Yes, after know. one week of programming. No, I, I, I played with an Arduino uh, two weeks ago, and I got burnt by uh, a typing mistake mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's a relief to have enough discipline in the language. It's like going. It's a relief to know that when you go and drive on the on the road, the other cars are going to be on the right side of mm -hmm. the road. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you don't have to think about it anymore. Okay. As soon as somebody invents that rule, everybody can see that it's a good idea that we agree yeah. on so that we all drive on the right side of the road. And, and nobody's going to complain. Why do you impose this rule on me? Mm. Um, so now th I think the the static analysis tools, the the strong point is that the the amount of extra energy you require from the engineer is quite low. And then you have an extra layer where you say, oh, the, the, we only re are going to require the engineer to ask, to add more information about the lo logical uh, statements that he wants to be satisfied at every point in the program. Like, at this place, this variable should be within that uh, interval. And uh, it should be a prime, which is not a, an interval property. Right, but some of these things, some of these assertions are also normal programmer routine. Yeah. Uh, and so if you, if you, and then for this, you can press a button and, uh, and uh, an automatic tool is called and it, it solves most of the problems. But the point I had with the Knuth example with the, uh, the array of prime numbers was that there will always remain formulae for which the automatic proof cannot be done for you. And for these ones, you will require the engineer to have way more uh, competence in using a tool, way more training and way more competence. And for now, I don't know uh, what is the, the economical model for that. You know, probably for very specific software where failure is really expensive, you want to have that happen. And really expensive is death here, right? It's Not it's only that, you know, if, you, if you're a company that sells modems, if you miss uh, the output of your modem for, for September, you're going to miss the Christmas season, it's the death of your company. It's the death of the company, right, mm. good. Yes, yeah, I'm a more of a humanist there, but yeah, I, I see. Yes, okay. but uh, mm. uh, yes, death is a problem, and it's, 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 it's every, uh, everywhere, but but uh, if, if we want to convince the industry to use this kind of technology, we, we have to have an economical case. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's less expensive to do it than to do something else. And the problem, uh, th than to not do it. Well, I could also imagine a case to be made not on an economical basis, but on a legal basis. Yes. That, that there could be a highly critical software where we can require uh, standards of software correctness that are way higher than what industry is economically uh, incentivized to do. Yes, in my dreams this, ha this, is, this happens, ah. but if we look at the history of the software industry, this is not exactly what happened because the, the we have enormous companies that were built on the idea that they were shipping fast, but not necessarily correct. And if we impose, if we want to impose today the law that you have to ship correct and not necessarily fast, they're going to say, you're going to, to kill our business. And they have enough power now that they can prevent that <coughs> from happening. Absolutely. But if you look at, at a company like Microsoft, which produced this quick and dirty OS, OS long ago, they are now very much convinced that they should be using this mm -hmm. kind of, of technology. Okay, that was the big picture thing. Let's just wrap this up by going back to Pi and, and talk about the, the specific, uh, because computing the millionth digit of Pi is, is, is just a milestone where we can say that this is what we can do right now. Right? And, and, and it's, it's a nice, easily communicated milestone. But it, it just talk a bit about what are, the, what are the challenges here. So there's a formula going back to, to Machen or Machin. Um, that one you proved well, correct? Well, the formula I used uh, was from Gauss, actually. Oh, Gauss. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So as yeah, as a as a Gauss, Gauss fan, I just assume that it's correct. But I guess it requires a proof as well. Well, no. My my objective was, uh, you know, of course, in that case, I used mathematics that was basically well known. But now you can consider that for another project, uh, given industry comes up with an arbitrary theorem that is really new. Mm -hmm. And then there is a doubt <coughs> that whether this theorem is yes, correct. Yes. And, but still, because, because you believe in this theorem, you start to think you can make a piece of software that's going to change the life of millions of people. And it's important that you do it, and it's important that this piece of software is correct. So at this place, you have a new piece of mathematics mm -hmm. that's been invented by a clever mathematician. You have a piece of software that's, that builds on it, and you want everything to be connected right. You, know, you don't want to, be, to have a loose wire anywhere. So you would like to say, I'm, I'm going to make sure of that by connecting everything together. Because it's a new theorem, I don't necessarily know uh, the perfect uh, field of application, the domain of application. So I want to have a description of this domain application that shows that where I'm going to use it for my software is inside, precise enough. Mm -hmm. And there I'm going to need some mathematics. So this Absolutely. is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to work on necessarily very new mathematics, except that the Bohr one, uh, th there are new formulas to compute pi mm -hmm. that have been produced very recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we also verified one of these. Um, so you have a new formula, you want to prove it correct, you want to make sure this, this is not going to be uh, a cause for failure of your software, and then you want to connect that with the software. And you want to make the software right. to, be, to be relying on the real assumptions, the ones that, you've to be, that, that were verified. So you need to have a language in which you can talk both about the software and both about the mathematics that goes with it. I, I guess what I want to ask is so if I was to sit down and just write a quick program that computed pi, I would take any of those many formulas from the shelf. I would then take an established library for doing computation with very high precision. I guess yeah. I would multiply everything with a few millions to get uh, to have integers now, because I'm much more comfortable in computing with integers. And the so computer is too. And the computer is too. So, so, so instead of it, instead of computing the millionth digit of a number that is between three and four, I want to compute the last digit of a number that is a million. Yes. Right. So, so I have computations and integers. I still have to add things that seem like fractions with very large numbers. But again, there are libraries for this. So I could, I guess, I could write up this code in in an hour, and then I could just press return, and then it does the number crunching probably in a few seconds, and out comes the millionth digit of pi, which is one. I guess I can today I can even pipe this into Wolfram Alpha or some other online systems that does the computation for me or has cached the computation. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, I check this um, so so just from a computing power uh, uh, point of view, we are currently able to compute pi to uh, trillions of digits. Yeah. I think 22 trillions of digits, and and this is done in several different ways. So there's some trust in this 22nd trillionth digit of pi being correct as well because different people have used different computers, different algorithms and different formulas to arrive at the same digit. But this is expressly not what you've been doing. You've, re you've compute or verified the computation of the millionth digit of pi, which involves operations on very large numbers. Yeah, well, in fact, I didn't care about the million exactly. I, I used uh, one number for, to show, but I, I cared about the algorithm. Yeah. So I could, tomorrow, if I want, I can restart this algorithm with another, another range and decide that the tenth millionth has given value. Oh, because you're using a formula that does not require you to compute all the earlier digits? You can just... No, that's not what I mean. Okay. Uh, what I mean is, I have an, uh, this, it's the algorithm that's verified. Yeah. The so algorithm is verified, yes. So including, it can, it can including be run many times. It, it, it won't make any mistake any time I, I do it. In some way, the people who just verify the algorithm against the, another implementation with a different formula, they do, they do about the same. They have good chances that it, that it works correctly. Yeah. But I wish to have removed the statical, statistical argument. Yes, and, and yes, and exactly. The because, because these these are two epistemologically, or if you want, morally different ways of increasing trust. One, one is computing things in different ways and, and seeing that the answer is the same, and the other is computing, uh, performing the computation 
in a, uh, by an algorithm where every step has been subject to this extremely stringent analysis of the verifier. Yeah, you could use, you could use two algorithms that are wrong, but do agree until a certain distance. And, and in that case, I would have to, to trust that these two algorithms, uh, the, the chances for you to pick two algorithms that are wrong but agree uh, are too low. But in the case uh, I'm, I'm saying, the, I'm saying the algorithm, at least the algorithm is completely verified. Yeah. I guess what I want is to, this is not just a question of number crunching, right? This is a question of writing proofs. Yes. I guess that's what I want, where I want to be. This is, this is more of an this intellectual... This is a question of writing proof, and in my case, wh what I wanted to, to illustrate is that we're advancing as a community in this kind of goal. That is, I'm, I'm reusing uh, uh, proofs that have been done by other people about how to make computation with big numbers. And I'm reusing proofs by other people about how to consider uh, the whole of... Uh, of uh, High school analysis yes. or, or and first and year proof analysis for, for uh, first year, first university years analysis real and real number analysis. And when you say you you re reusing proofs, you say you say you're reusing verified proofs in that system. I'm so there's an increasing library of established math yes. that we can build on. There is a lot of, of uh, you know if 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 we're a lot of people who do uh, automatic proof, they start from a clean table every computation. For me, I start from a library of established results. And somehow, one of the efforts of the community efforts is to make sure that the proof system comes with a library of known facts that can be reused for, to, 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 to make a lot of progress. So in this sense, you know, I really feel part of a, of a community effort. And there are two aspects. The, the Coq system itself should be uh, easy to use and the libraries that are provided with it should make it even more easy to do enough mathematics or enough algorithmics or enough computer, you know, uh, for example. There are a lot of people who are reusing this concert effort about the certified compiler because they want to study uh, new approaches to correct programming with C, uh, for example, also in concurrent settings and things like that. And they reuse the data that's already provided for this first project. So it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's a community that's building up on its own uh, advances. Excellent. I think that's a great way of um, finishing the, computation, uh, the conversation, not the computation, <laughs> the conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. Thank you, Eve, for coming. You're welcome. And thank you all for tuning in. You can find a lot of conversations of this type on castit.itu.dk. Bye.